All right. Well, here I am again. I um, Nobody asked me directly to record another book, but I assumed everybody wanted me to record another book because why wouldn't you? I'm clearly awesome at reading. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've been having fun and I hope everyone else has been having fun. So I thought I'd try another one and as long as there are listeners, I suppose I'll keep trying um, to keep you all entertained for half an hour or so every day. Um, the next book I picked out was Sense and Sensibility. Why did I pick Sense and Sensibility? Um, I picked it because I think it's a very exciting book um, because you have a dual romance plot line in this novel. I don't want to give too much away, but um, most of the Jane Austen books are with one character having a central romance story. Pride and Prejudice, you kind of have two, but it's mostly one. This one, you really have dual characters having dual romances, and I think it makes it a more um, exciting read because of that. So I thought, hey, after the calm and chill of persuasion maybe it was time for a little ooh zesty something a little more moving um as far as moving of romance regency novels can be um <laughs> yeah uh i uh i really like sense and sensibility um you'll probably hear me say a few times that my sister could be eleanor if she was to be any other character besides Anne elliot she would be eleanor in my teenage years, I think I was definitely more of a Marianne. Um, I've probably, sometimes, like, when I do that, you know, which Jane Austen character are you, I sometimes get Emma, I sometimes get Elizabeth, um, but I think, yeah, when I was younger, I was probably a lot more like Marianne. Um, yeah. So, I like Marianne a lot because of that, and I'm very fond of Eleanor because she's a little like my sister, so, yeah, there we go again. Um, I... Really hope you'll enjoy Sense and Sensibility. I'll keep going, like I said, so long as I have listeners. Um, book note, Sense and Sensibility was the first book that Jane Austen published. Um, she'd written, she'd been writing for many, many years of her life um, with encouragement from her family. And she finally decided to publish Sense and Sensibility um, in 1811 anonymously. She um, published it by a lady was her pen name. Um, and it was a hit. Um, I think it's, it's obviously I like it. I think it's a good book. Uh, but you will notice if you listen to the persuasion podcast, there's a stylistic difference. Her voice isn't quite as developed. Um, her style is a little different just because she's younger. She's not as inexperienced of a writer. Um, but there is an advantage when you read novels. Um, I always like to read a writer's first novel, um, especially their first published novel, because it is usually the book that they spend the most time on. If you read Agatha Christie's novels, which I totally recommend because they're great books, like that very first Hercule Poirot book uh, is probably one of her best books because she spent forever writing it. Um you know, the first Harry Potter book was the best Harry Potter book, in my humble opinion, because she spent a lot of time going over it and making sure it was perfect. And then later, you know, writers get into flows and they get into bad habits or they have editors who are pushing and pushing and publishers who are pushing and want 
books faster and faster and the quality slides a little so um in some ways sense and sensibility isn't quite as much what i think of as jane austen's style but i think it's a really well crafted book because she spent a long time writing it um so those are some just some interesting style notes uh if you're as into writing as i am i think you'll enjoy um Jane Austen books from that perspective as well um, because it's fun to see the evolution of a writer of course I'm reading the books in a completely arbitrary way on the podcast so you can't really see the evolution because I'm going to bounce back and forth between her ages but you know that's a general idea um, so yes this was her first book and, and yeah let's start talking about chapter notes for chapter one to talk about chapter one we have to talk about inheritance um Inheritance is a big deal in this culture. Well, I I mean, honestly, inheritance is still a really big deal even today. But um, back then, it, it features in all of Jane Austen's books. Who is getting what from their parents and when are they going to get it? Uh, it's just a really big deal because um, when you had a landed gentry that were supposed to, you know, nobility were not supposed to work. They were supposed to make money off of their own money. You know, you were supposed to make money off of your properties. And because that was very important to them, having property was important. And then who was going to get the property? And what are you going to do if you don't have sons? And what are you going to do with your daughters? All of those were really big questions in this society. I think, um, so it's even bigger than today. So if you listen to the Persuasion podcast, we talked about it with Mr. Elliot was going to inherit Kellich. Well, because he was going to inherit it, that's why Sir Walter couldn't sell it. And Anne was glad about that in Persuasion. But then you have Mrs. Clay, who, because she is a woman, she can't handle her husband's business affairs. And so then what is she going to do when she's left single? Um it's it's just it's a really big deal and it's a big and the sense and sensibility starts off right away with a big problem with inheritance inheritance um you have an old bachelor mr dashwood um and he owns an estate called norland park and he invites the man who's going to inherit norland to come live with him kind of as um throwing the man a bone because i mean honestly why are you going to spend your money if you're just going to end up living here anyway and you can get to know the estate and anyway. So he invites his nephew to come live with him. His nephew's on a second marriage. His first marriage, he had a son. Yay, the line continues. Someone else will inherit the, inherit the estate. Well, for his second marriage, he has three daughters. Now, Theoretically, a woman's dowry can be divided down to her daughter, to her children, her daughters specifically. In um, Pride and Prejudice, all the Bennett girls are going to get one thousand pounds from their mother, and they're all supposed to split it all together. That would have been her dowry. Um, it was just a pretty common way of dividing the money and setting it aside immediately after marriage. So having a dowry was extremely important to provide for your children. If you cannot provide for your children as a woman, your husband was supposed to have set aside his money to provide for children. Here's another hiccup. Inheritance, because you estates are entailed, and that's what they call it when the line of inheritance is the entailment of the estate. Um, 
if the estate is going to be entailed away from your direct line. So like in this case, it's getting entailed to his nep the man who owns Norland. It's getting entailed to his nephew. So the money that the estate makes has to be long to the estate. And a certain portion of it has to go into keeping up the estate. The estate has to be passed on in the same condition in which you inherited it. Extra monies you can use for your own whatever you want to do with them. But most of the money has to stay with the estate. And this was a way of keeping people like Sir Walter from bankrupting an estate before Mr. Elliot got a chance to get the estate. Um, so he bankrupted himself, but the estate was safe from him doing that. In this story, um, we have Norland Park. It's set up. It makes nice money. They're all living together. Happy, happy, happy. His Mr. John Dashwood... The, the nephew of the man who owns the estate has a son who will inherit his three daughters by his second marriage have nothing from their mother. And well, they have a little pen, little tiny amount, but nothing really. Um, and so what will have to happen is they will have to get nice gifts from whoever owns the estate set aside for them to have as their dowries. This is a big deal because in those societies we had, it was an honor society, an honor duty um, society. You had a family duties. Saw that theme played out a lot in Jane Austen novels. So technically, um, a man of honor would take care of their half siblings and make sure that they don't go hungry, that they don't go dourlyless. Dourly? How would you? I don't know if I can even use that as a verb, but you know. Um, and so that's that's how inheritance is supposed to go. It, technically, it should all be fine as long as you have a man of honor who inherits the estate and can take care of everyone. Do you think that always happens? Do you think this always works out? No, it does not. No, 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 no. Of course not. Um, and thus you have the crux of the problem. Start and anyway, but that that's that's how inheritance works. That's how entailment works. Your money is not necessarily your money. It's the estate's money. You get some money. This also means that things that are in the estate, like, um, say, the furniture. The furniture might technically belong to the estate. It depends on how the entailment process worked. But um, if the furniture belongs to the estate, that means that you can't sell it. You could upgrade it, but it would you would have to spend your money to upgrade it. And then if you're going to estate is going to be entailed away, like your someone's cousin is going to get the estate after you, your own sons aren't going to get it. Why would you spend your money to upgrade furniture that somebody else's son is going to get a live in? So this actually this process led to serious um, problem with estates looking really run down and shabby because people didn't maintain um, everything in the estate, you were supposed to pass it on in the same condition, but there's nothing saying you had to improve the condition. Uh, so, I mean, sometimes people would get estates in horrible condition. Um, so the, it was a, it was a system fraught with problems and not to mention the social welfare of women and children, but I, I have talked long enough. Let's get to the book. Okay. I'm sorry. I just suddenly saw how long I'd been talking. It was like, Oh, I got on a soapbox. Okay. Story time. 
The family of Dashwood had long been settled in Sussex. Their estate was large, and their residence was at Norland Park, in the center of their property, where, for many generations, they had lived in so respectful a manner as to engage the general good opinion of their surrounding acquaintance. The last owner but one of this estate was a single man who had lived to a very advanced age, and who for many years of his life had a constant companion in his housekeeper and his sister. But at her death, which happened some ten years before his own, produced a great alteration in his home, for to supply her loss he invited and received into the house of his family and nephew Mr. Henry Dashwood, the legal inheritor of Norland Estate, and the person to whom he intended to bequeath it. In the society of his nephew and niece and their children, the old gentleman's days were comfortably spent. His attachment to them all increased. The constant attention of Mr. and Mrs. Henry Dashwood to his good wishes, which proceeded not merely from interest but from goodness of heart, gave him every degree of solid comfort which his age could receive, and the cheerfulness of the children added relish to his existence. By former marriage, Mr. Henry Dashwood had only one son, by his present lady three daughters the son a steady respectable young man was amply provided for by the fortune of his mother which had been large and half of which had devolved on him in his in his coming of age by his own marriage likewise which happened soon afterwards he added to his wealth his wife had something considerable at present and something more to expect hereafter from her mother her only surviving parent who had much to give to him, therefore, the succession at the Norland estate was not so really important as to his sisters, for their fortune, the independent of what might arise to them from their father's inheriting the property, could be but small. Their mother had nothing, and their father had only seven thousand pounds in his own disposal, for the remaining money of his wife's fortune had also secured to her child, and he only had a life interest in it. So there you go. Uh, Mr. Henry Dashwood's first wife, her dowry money went mostly to her son, and he can have the rest of the money so long as he's alive, but when he is dead, the money will not be his anymore. It will go to probably to her son. Um, so there we already we had we see problems of money doesn't necessarily belong to who in modern society would think the money belonged to. The old gentleman died, his will was read, and like almost every other will, gave as much disappointment as pleasure. He was neither so unjust nor ungrateful as to leave his estate away from his nephew, but he left it to him on terms as destroyed half the value of the bequest. Mr. Dashwood had wished for more than the sake, more for the sake of his wife and daughters than for his son, but to his son and his son's child, a child only four years old, it was secured, in such a way as to leave himself no power of providing for those who were most dear to him, and who most needed a provision by any division of the estate, or any sale of his valuable woods. The whole was tied up for the benefit of this child, who, in occasional visits from his father and mother at Norland, had so far gained on the affection of his uncle, by such attractions are as no means unusual, unusual in a child of two or three years old, an imperfect articulation and earnest desire of having his own way, many cunning tricks, a great deal of noise, as to outweigh all the value of attention which, four years, he had received from his niece and her daughters. He had not meant to be unkind, however, and as a mark of his affection for the girls, he left them a thousand pounds apiece. Mr. Dashwood's disappointment was, at the first, severe, but his temper was cheerful and sanguine, and he might reasonably hope to live for many years, and by living economically, lay by a considerable sum for the 
produce of a state already large and capable of almost immediate improvement. But the fortune, which had been so tardy in coming, was only to be his a twelvemonth. He survived his uncle no longer, and ten thousand pounds, including the legacies, was all that remained for his widow and daughters. His son was sent for, and as soon as the danger was known, and to him Mr. Dashwood recommended, with all the strength and urgencies which illness could command, the interest of his mother-in-law and sisters. Mr. John Dashwood had not the strong feelings of the rest of the family, but he was affected by a recommendation of such a nature at such a time that he promised to do everything in his power to make them comfortable. His father was rendered easy by such an assurance, and Mr. John Dashwood had the leisure to consider how much there might be prudently in his power to do for them. He was not an ill-disposed young man, unless rather cold heart unless to be rather cold-hearted and rather selfish is to be ill-disposed. But he was in general well-respected, for he conducted himself with propriety in the discharge of his ordinary duties. He had married a more amiable woman. He might have been made still more respectable than he was. He might have even been made amiable himself, for he was very young when he married and very fond of his wife. But Mrs. John Dashwood was a strong caricature of himself, more narrow-minded and selfish." When he gave his promise to his father, he meditated within himself to increase the fortunes of his sisters by the present of a thousand pounds apiece. He really then thought himself to equal to it. The prospect of four thousand a year, in addition to his present income, besides the remaining half of his mother's own fortune, warmed his heart and made him feel capable of generosity. Yes, he would give them three thousand pounds. It would be liberal and handsome. It would make them an enough to be completely easy three thousand pounds he could spare so considerable a sum with little inconvenience he thought about it all day long and for many days successively he did not repent no sooner was his father's funeral over than mrs john dashwood without sending any notice of her intention to her mother-in-law arrived with her child in attendance which is super rude you don't arrive at someone's house without announcing that you're going to come it would be I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, a similar way of putting it in today's terms, but it would be, like, if you sold your house and the new owners moved in before they were expected or announced and you just kind of had to, like, let them live there. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just awkward and rude. Um, yeah. No one could dispute her right to come. The house was her husband's from the moment of his father's decease, but the indelicacy of her conduct was so much the greater, and a woman in Mrs. Dashwood's situation with common feelings must have been highly unpleasant. But in her mind there was a sense of honor so keen, a generosity so romantic, that any offense of the kind by whomever given or received was her source of immovable disgust. Mrs. John Dashwood had never been a favorite with with her husband's family, but she had no opportunity till the present of showing them how little attention to the comfort of other people she could act on when occasion required it. So acutely did Mrs. Dashwood feel this ungracious behavior, and so earnestly did she despise her daughter-in-law for it, that on the arrival of the latter she would have quitted the house forever, had not the entreaty of her eldest girl, girl influenced her first to reflect on the propriety of going, and that her own tender love for all three children determined her afterwards to stay, and for their sakes avoid a breach with their brother. Eleanor, this eldest daughter, whose advice was so effectual and possessed such a strength of understanding and the coolness of judgment, 
which qualified her, though only nineteen, to be the counsellor of her mother, and enable her frequently to counteract the to the advantage of them all that eagerness of mind in Mrs. Dashwood which must have generally led to imprudence. She had an excellent heart, her disposition was affectionate, and her feelings were strong, but she knew how to govern them. It was a knowledge which her mother had yet to learn, and one which her sister had never and never been had resolved never to be taught. <laughs> Marianne's abilities were, in many respects, quite equal to Eleanor's. She was sensible and clever, but eager in everything. Her sorrows, her joys, could have no moderation. She was generous, amiable, interesting, and she was everything but prudent. The resemblance between her and her mother was strikingly great. Eleanor saw, with concern, the excess of her sister's sensibility, but by Mrs. Dashwood it was valued and cherished. They encouraged each other, and now the violence of their affliction, the agony of grief which overpowered them at first, was voluntarily renewed. It was sought for and created again and again. They gave themselves up wholly to their sorrow, seeking to increase the wretchedness in every reflection that could afford it, and resolving against ever admitting consolation in the future. Eleanor, too, was deeply afflicted, but she still could struggle, she could exert herself. She must consult with her brother, and receive her sister-in-law on her arrival, and treat, her, treat them with every proper attention, and could strive to rouse her mother to similar exertion, and encourage her to similar forbearance. Margaret, the other sister, was good-humoured and well-disposed girl, but she had already imbibed a good deal of Marianne's romance without having much of her sense, and she did not, at thirteen, bid fair to equal her, bid fair to equal her sisters at a more advanced period of life. End chapter one. All right, well, can you tell which character Jane Austen is most uh, in love with already? Um, she definitely makes it sound like Eleanor is the bee's knees and the other two are just kind of silly at this point. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, I get it. Like I am, like I've said, you know, I'm one of those persons. I feel everything really strongly, probably too strongly for my own good. I'm a little more like Marianne. Um, and in those days, especially you were expected to, as they said, exert yourself, meaning, you know, keep a cool, calm exterior. Don't show everyone what you're feeling. Keep it all to yourself. Um, it just wasn't proper to feel things so publicly and so loudly, especially not when your feeling them came at the cost of your not being able to perform your proper duties. Um, like they are so wretched in their grief. They can't properly greet their sister-in-law. Um, yeah. So back in those days, yes, you were not supposed to feel things as strongly. So it's definitely Eleanor who has the better character at present, at least for the societies, what the society needs, um, in that time. Um, and then poor little Margaret, who's 13 and she's just a child. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll not hold it too much against her, but anyway, that's the first chapter. We've already had two deaths and major upset. So, you know, like I said, it's a more exciting story. Are you feeling it? Um, I changed the interlude music from the Persuasion book, mostly because I figured you all were tired of listening to that interlude music. I picked a piano piece because um, Marianne plays the piano in Sense and Sensibility. 
and I thought it was pretty. So <laughs> I just thought I'd mention that. All right. Well, that was chapter one. Um, the just like um, persuasion, chapter length, consistency is not one of the things Jane Austen was ever worried about. So the beginning chapter here is are all really short, and later chapters are all really long. Um, this book is substantially longer than Persuasion. So Persuasion took me a month and a week to read. I'm guessing this one might take me two months, maybe three. Uh, so we could be at this a while, um, just, just so everyone knows. All right, well, I am already very much excited to read the next chapter, and I'll talk to you all next time.